0: Ask me my three main priorities for government. And I tell you, education, education, and education. Tony Blair's famous speech in 1996, where he outlined his top three priorities for a Labour government. Education, education, education. In 2002, an organisation came along that helped him tackle that priority. It dramatically changed how teachers were recruited. I'm Graeme Ruddick, and you're listening to Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at business stories from the past. In this episode, we look at the creation of Teach First, which became the biggest graduate recruiter in the UK. We speak to Brett Wigdortz, about how the organization was founded, the controversies it faced, and his new venture, Tiny, which helps parents find childminders through an app.
1: So for about 20 years now, I've really focused my energies on unending educational disadvantage. And uh, I have a strong belief this is one of the biggest civil rights problems of our time um, that so many young people don't get access to an outstanding education, others do. And until we live in a society where every young person, every child has access to an outstanding education, we're not giving everyone equal opportunities or equal rights. And I've worked on that through Teach First for 15 years and chairing the National Citizen Service. But the main area I've started focusing on over the last few years is early years because. I think there's been a lot more evidence that shows all children from the youngest age need access to really good quality childcare uh, that follows some sort of educational framework and, you know, a safe and happy place for the children. And that provides a really important base for the children to be school ready, have a good childhood and be successful in education. And yet this is probably the most broken area of the education system in the UK and in many countries around the world. And my belief is with a bit of focus and effort. This is an area that really could improve a lot, but it really needs a lot more attention than it currently gets.
0: How did you build your understanding of the problem in this area? Was this something that became apparent when at Teach First?
1: Yeah, when I was at Teach First, I visited hundreds of schools around the country and around the world. I visited over 30 or 40 countries. And the one thing that struck me is very few countries are doing earlier as well. It always seems like, you know, the, the least focused area of the education sector. In England, I think there doesn't seem to be enough focus on it. At Teach First, we started placing teachers into school nurseries a few years ago. And you could see the impact they could have really quickly. It's just amazing when you see really good teachers working with young kids. I mean, they, they really, if you think for a four-year-old, a great teacher is with that child a quarter of their life. Uh, It's a major, major impact, much bigger than working with teenagers. But yet, you know, even though that's the case for all sorts of reasons, the UK government, other governments don't really focus enough on early years. Uh, And more and more, I think there's been scientific evidence that shows brain development is really key for young children. And that that sort of good, high quality childcare is really important for their success later in life. And I think we've always underestimated how important it is.
0: How many problems in the wider economy whether you look at labor shortages or productivity stem from this issue of problems with early years, education and childcare?
1: I think a lot of problems in society stem from this. So you know, it's almost a, a triangle of opportunities or problems. So one, one side of the triangle is you have a lot of parents and if we're being frank, mostly moms, though sometimes dads, who um, don't go back to work because they have to stay home and take care of their children or do after school care even for older children. And that really damages the productivity of the entire country when you have a lot of really good people who probably want to go back to work, uh, but aren't able to because of all sorts of childcare problems. And, you know, Almost anyone I talk to can give me lots of examples of that of a spouse or a friend who has that situation, and I think that's a major productivity crisis for for the UK. I think the second leg of it is we know lots of children from lower income backgrounds don't get access to the quality of early years care that children from wealthier backgrounds get, and we know that in year one, two, three, key stage one, key stage two, there in primary schools, they're far behind from year one. They're not able to access school in the way wealthier kids are who have a better early years um, you know, framework behind them. And so we know that that then is a gap that gets wider and wider as they get older, and it makes more and more difficult for secondary school teachers or beyond to fix. And then the third aspect is early years employees are really a misused resource in this country. So it, you know, they're paid awful. In nurseries, they're often paid minimum wage, less than living wage. Um, you know these are professionals who have really important jobs and they're paid massively less than teachers, nurses, paramedics, other really important people in society who already none of them are getting paid great but nursery workers and earliest workers are getting paid even less so as a result you have lots of really talented people who want to work with young children who are really good at it but can't do the job because um, the pain conditions don't work for them.
0: You've touched on this a little bit already but How does the UK compare to other countries in the world? Is it a bigger problem here than in other countries? And are there any countries who are doing this really well?
1: Yeah, I think most countries in the world have a problem here. So it's one of these areas that is often under-resourced and under-focused. And I think there's all sorts of historical reasons. I think there's definitely a... um, sexism part of that, you know, there's definitely a view that, you know, this is sort of something moms historically have dealt with, and the state doesn't have to help, you know, back from the 1950s or so. And I think that hasn't caught up enough over the last, you know, 70, 80 years. A few countries do do it well. I mean, people always look at Singapore, you know, which is always good at lots of things, and they have a real strategy. There's uh, some of the Nordic countries have a real focus on it. But when you look around the world, I think there's not many countries that really do this well. It's it's not something that, you know, I think many countries have focused enough on. And I think probably they're still focused on the past and not what so much evidence shows from the last 20 or 30 years about the importance of earlier years.
0: Just, just taking this sort of wider economy point, if we're, we're serious in in the UK about improving the number of women in senior positions and getting equality across senior levels... This is an area that has to be solved, isn't
1: it? Absolutely. I mean, that's what I always, um, I think is amazing. Like there's so many other things people are looking at. And I think there's, you know, wonderful changes that have happened, including, you know, businesses having to report on pay gaps and things like that. But in the end, if there's not good childcare available for kids, parents are going to suffer and it's usually mums who are going to suffer. And that has to be dealt with if you want to have a more fair society.
0: So if that's the backdrop, how does tiny
1: fit into this and and how did did the whole business start? So when I looked at the earlier sector, I think one of the problems we have in England is um, it's very difficult for practitioners, professionals to earn a living wage. And, you know, I don't think anyone goes into early years wanting to, you know, make a fortune, but you need to be able to earn a living wage, at the very least, similar to teachers, nurseries, you know, other, other key workers. Currently, their salaries are about half of that. The problem with nurseries is nurseries really struggle to pay a living wage to their staff because they have so many overheads. They have buildings they have to pay for, they have a lot of management, they have all these layers. So unless government or parents are going to inject a lot more money into nurseries, it's really hard for them to pay a living wage. And so my thought was, what's another solution? And I got very excited about childminding because childminding is basically I think of as like the Airbnb of nurseries where people do it from their own homes. It's busy running small nurseries in your homes with a few children. But because you're at your own home, you earn all the money. And what we've seen is, you know, child miners, certainly our child miners earn on average over 20 pounds an hour. It's a good salary. And because they're taking care of anywhere from three to six children, if they're getting, you know, seven pounds, eight pounds per child, you could, you know, and you keep 90% or so of that money, you know, that's an okay salary and it's flexible and it feels like it should work. But what we've seen over the last 10 years, 15 years is child mining numbers drop tremendously it's dropped by about 70% i think in the last 15 years massively and when i was looking at why have childminder numbers dropped it's basically a few reasons i think one no one's focused on childminding no one's focused on you know making childminding into a career for the 21st century it's not something you hear a lot of like real you know strategic people thinking about how to change and improve childminding which which they should be doing um, the problem is it's really hard to run your own childminding business so you have lots of people who are really good at childminding Great working with kids, but struggle to run the business. It's hard to get registered and licensed. Local authorities used to provide a lot of support, but their funding has been pulled, so they don't have as much support available for childminding. So, you know, I think the reason child miner numbers have dropped is because no one is recruiting, training, supporting child miners in the country. And I make the point if no one was recruiting, training, supporting police or firemen or nurses or anyone else, there wouldn't be any nurses, police, or firemen or anyone else in this country either. And I think that's just the big gap, you know. And because child mining isn't seen as important as policing or other things things, um, no one's really focused on enough. So my thought was, how can we make childminding into a 21st century career, get it up to date, make it much easier for people to run their business and get certified, and use tech in other ways so that younger you know, people uh, would be getting in, into childminding and being able to run a successful business from their home. So that was my thought a few years ago, is how can I create a tech-enabled childminding agency that can help childminders and grow the sector.
0: Brett Wigdortz was born in New Jersey in the US. He studied economics and international politics at the University of Richmond in Virginia and then got a master's in economics from the University of Hawaii. He travelled to Asia and got a job with a consultancy firm McKinsey in Indonesia. McKinsey transferred Wigdawts to its London office and that is when the Teach First story
1: began. I was supposed to be in London just for one year. And then I was either going to go to America or Singapore was the idea. But, you know, London's a great city. I I lived in, I grew up in New Jersey. I lived in New York for a year. I've now been here 20 years. Um, And I I think London, you know, I'm a massive fan of London. I think to whisper it, I think London has all the advantages of New York, but a lot more, you know, (laughs) like it's just a great city international you know talk about brexit you know as a, as a sad moment but but it still feels like a very international city great culture but also more parks and much more livable i think i think london's amazing
0: was it a bit of a culture shock when you first arrived What in what was late nineties, early two thousands? Yeah,
1: late it was early two thousands. I mean it wasn't so much a culture shock because I was I lived in Indonesia the last few years. So, you know, London compared to New Jersey is not much of a culture shock compared to Indonesia compared to New Jersey. But you know, I do remember yeah, there were a lot of differences. I mean, maybe people don't even say this anymore, but I just remember, I, I always make a joke, like for the first year or two, people would say things like, oh, um, you know, teaching grandma to suck eggs or they get along like a house on fire. Or, there were other sayings, which I had absolutely no idea. I just remember like for a year went by and I had no idea what people meant with some of these sayings and it's taken me a while. To uh,
0: I'm not sure I understand them all either. So um, don't worry about that. He's certainly not alone. The, the story that ends where you are now, if I'm right, begins with work he did for McKinsey with what was then Prince Charles and business in the community and a sort of research project about inner city London schools.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I come from a family of teachers uh, and teaching has always been really interesting to me. And my work I'd done in Southeast Asia was focused on the war for talent. How can companies get the best talent? So Ian Davis, who is head of the London office of McKinsey at that time, put together a team to help the businesses that had asked him. Uh, to see what could businesses do to improve the quality of schools in London, especially in lower-income areas. And to go back in 2002, it was an interesting time. Tony Blair had run for prime minister by saying, education, 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 were his three top priorities. I think as of 2001, 2002, he hadn't made as much progress as he would have liked. So that was one thing. And then I think the other thing was schools in London really were were in troubled situation. You know, it really gets scared sometimes in the current situation, if we could ever go back to that moment. But, um, you know, I visit a lot of schools and they were not in good shape. I think, you know, um, I visit a lot of schools where children, uh, young people, teenagers, you know, really didn't have much goals. I spoke to head teachers who were telling me, you know, they just want to keep the kids out of jail. You know, and you, people can disagree about, you know, are GCSEs too important now or is there too much focus on testing? You know, and I think there's some concerns about that. But on the other hand, I think at that point there was not enough focus on testing. It was too too much of a problem the other side. And I think there were a lot of schools where people um, were happy for a lot of children to leave school without any real qualifications or having learned enough, you know, and there was a pretty pretty low standards in many schools. One of the things we learned at that point was a lot of schools really struggled to attract and keep talent. I remember visiting the head of careers at Oxford who said, like, at that point, he had about five of his graduates go off to teach in state schools that year, just as one example, you know. So it wasn't the sort of top thing a lot of graduates were thinking of doing. And what we did at McKinsey was we developed the war for talent, thinking, OK, if, if schools were like a business, how would they attract and keep the best talent? And that helped us write a business plan for Teach First, which was the idea of really something around building a cohort of individuals who are very focused on mission, values, great training, you know, working together, quick, you know, getting the deep end quicker than normal. And um, luckily, we had a support from, you know, Tony Blair and Andrew Donis, who was at Downing Street, to really cut through a lot of the minefields of civil servants and get it get it done
0: when did you realize that this
1: might be something that you might want to run yourself so at first you know my thought was this was just a project then i was going to go back to mckinsey and then near the end i remember talking to a mentor of mine uh, his name's joe owen who um writes lots of leadership books and i knew him from a few people and he said well look when you go back to mckinsey who's going to take this thing forward And I remember saying, well, I I don't, I'm worried no one will, you know, and I had done a few projects. I mean, when you're a consultant, sometimes they go really great. And I had a few though, that were really depressing because we came up with all these ideas that, you know, I think broadly many consultants, they just kind of want to make an impact. Like, I think that does drive a lot of consultants. I did a bunch of projects where we'd come up with what I thought were really good ideas, and they never came forward, and nothing happened from them. And it was getting frustrating. And so I talked to Ian at the time. And he said, well, look, why don't you take a six-month leave of absence and try to get this started, and then come back and you know see if you can do that. You know, And I'll always thank Ian for that. I think if he hadn't come up with that idea, uh, you know, I never would have done it. And Teach First never would have happened. So I took a six-month leave of absence from McKinsey to try to get started. And then uh, I remember going to meetings. And people asked, who are you? Why are you here? And I said, oh, I'm a consultant on a leave of absence, blah, 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 blah. And I was once at a meeting with Joe and he said, don't call yourself that. No one's going to pay attention to you. Just call yourself CEO of this thing. You know, and I was like, well, no one's appointed me CEO. And he's like, you know, there is no one to appoint you. Just, just call yourself people taking you more seriously. And so I called myself CEO, maybe a bit of a fraud because no, no one ever appointed me. And uh, it's true, people took seriously. And after six months, we got approval from everyone. We got funding, government signed off on it. And I was just CEO. I'd never been appointed. And I remember then talking to Ian about it. And he said, well, why don't you do it for a few years and then you could always come back after that? You know? And I think like 15 years later, they probably, you know, just I never wanted to go back, basically. Maybe he probably knew that at the time. And I think he was sort of just dangling that out. But um, you know, I think it was like 10 years later, we had a head of HR at teach first. They were going through employment contracts for everyone to, to digitalize them. And they came and said, Brett, we never found your employment contract. Where is it? And it turned out I had never actually been appointed as CEO. Um, I think it was like 11 or 12 years in before I got an official contract.
0: Teach First became the biggest recruiter of graduates in the UK, hiring more than 1,500 teachers every year. More than 20,000 teachers have been hired over 20 years. It's opened up teaching to those who'd never considered it as a career before, And more than half the teachers hired by Teach First are still in the profession.
1: So the first few years were really difficult. You know, and I wouldn't want anyone to think we didn't make a ton of mistakes, and it was just like a nice, smooth path, you know, forward. I always tell people about the valleys of death we had along the way, and there were a lot of near-death experiences where, you know, we weren't sure it would work and made tons of mistakes. We managed early on to get business support. So You know we managed to raise about a million pounds from business we got about half a million from government we got regulations changed from government to get started and i think what was great the early years was we had a lot of energy i was the oldest member of staff and i was 28 years old i think everyone else was younger than me and there was a real startup mentality there just kind of like i just you know just remember all of us in the office working till midnight staying at awful hotels like doing things that you just wouldn't want you know any normal startup to do or any government thing to do and i think we were so not government at the time i think that was really helpful i think we you know really felt ownership of it and there's a very entrepreneurial feeling and so that got us through all the all the problems i think in those early days we just sort of you know threw tons of energy at it after a few years i think then we were just in london gordon brown when he was prime minister he um we weren't getting really any government money they were they're paying the universities for some of our training but we weren't getting any government money and i had a meeting with one of gordon brown's people who said what would you need to scale and i said well look we need some government money we need this that and the other you know, some regulations changed and he made an announcement about that without telling us. I remember it was part of a budget speech. We didn't know about it until afterwards. And that helped us get going. And then we got support from Michael Gove, who in opposition I would had a lot of meetings with. And he said, well, look, if we win the 2010 election, you know, what would it take for Teach First to be truly national and to double in size again? I, that was his question to me. So I gave him a paper and I said, this is what we would need. And then when they won the election, you know, two months later, he said, OK, we've you got everything in your paper. Now go do it. So I think, you know, there, there was definitely at different points that sort of support. I think Andrew Donis, Gordon Brown, Michael Gove, you know, three different political figures <laughs> who don't have a lot in common. But I think at different points, each of them helped give us that additional government support we needed to grow, you know, as well as lots of business support and others. Yeah.
0: Just, just on those mistakes you said in the early days, because a lot of people would be interested in that. What, what were they?
1: Oh, God. I could. So, um, I think I could talk for hours, um, be very cathartic about it. I mean, early on, I had meetings with government ministers where they weren't fans of us and we didn't pre plan the meetings well enough. So we, we, you know, I, I remember a minister, Stephen Timms, turned us down at that point because that's what civil servants were pushing him. And I hadn't planned for that meeting well enough. Um, I had very poor uh, management skills. I'd never managed anyone before in my life. And, you know, I think I feel truly sorry for the rest of my life for the early team and probably (laughs) how I treated them and like how we worked together. And, you know, I was never really sure when to micromanage, when to, you know, do different things. I think I was probably uh, that, you know, what else were some mistakes I mean, I think, uh yeah, probably it was around that. I mean, obviously hiring the wrong people sometimes, you know, that that's sort a of mistake and staying too long, you know, with that. I mean, I think probably where we didn't make a mistake, and I think what got us through was I think our strategy was right overall. And we were very ambitious. It's something I'm often worried about in the charity sector. I think many charities aren't ambitious enough. If I was to get a little soapbox, I think what worked is we did want to get to, you know, national very early. We did want to be, you know, I, I'm almost have a competitive streak and I always wanted to be the biggest graduate recruiter in the country while keeping quality standards and you know keeping high quality I think that drive was always really important but definitely there were a lot of casualties along the way and we you know made tons of mistakes.
0: Just on that opposition from, from some people in government and some of the criticism that you faced what would you say now are the, as the answers to those because I guess the two main ones were were you financially efficient as in did this offer value for money and secondly did you, well, there's three things. Two, did you just train up people as teachers who then went on to have business careers? And then thirdly, did this just benefit cities and particularly London rather than the overall UK?
1: For the first one, no, in that most of them do stay in teaching and those who leave teaching, the vast majority... Get involved in educational charities or policy or something. So I think you know we can show after 20 years our retention is as good as other routes in the teaching. You know, and more of them are in leadership roles. And I feel like that's not a not a fair criticism. I just think the data doesn't support it. Was it more London focused? I think that criticism is totally fair because we were totally London focused, and I didn't want us to be. But that was you know there was a real focus on London in those early years, and I would say we tried to get out of London as soon as possible, but we really pushed back. Got a lot of pushback from government. I mean, I have a story where you know I remember traveling and visiting different schools. We were trying to figure things out, and going to Hull, and I visited a school there and met some of the um, school council leads, some of the teenagers there, and explained what Teach First was. And one of them said, "Oh, you know, are you guys in Hull?" And I said, "Oh, no, not yet." And then you know he he was like pushing me. He's like, "Well, how long have you been going?" I was like, "You know, twelve years." Oh, and where are you? Well, London, you know Manchester, and he's like, "Well, why are you in Hull?" And I said, "Well, you know, London's just easier. We started there." And he's like, "What you think?" And I just—I still remember being bollocked by this sixteen-year-old boy, um, who was absolutely one hundred percent right. You know, he was totally right. Like, why weren't we in Hull? Why London should have probably been the last place we should have been in because Hull, Grimsby, you know, all these other areas—they're desperate for outstanding teaching and, and school leadership even more than London. You know, and these kids need it even more than London. Um, And I think we fell in the trap that so many charities fall into. I, you know, I see so many charities do the same thing where they start in London and then they go to Birmingham and Manchester and, you know, they never get to Grimsby. And, you know, that that's, I think, massive mistake Um, value for money. I I think we were really good value for money. You know, I um, our our teacher training wasn't really more expensive than others. And, you know, I think so many of our teachers our head teachers are in leadership roles. I feel pretty strongly we can make a good value from any case.
0: Did you understand why some people were uncomfortable with the idea of people using teaching as a way to then have a career in a different industry?
1: I mean, I understood it, but I disagree strongly with it. People go into accounting to do a career in a different industry. People go into law to do a career in a different industry. People go into anything to do careers in all sorts of industries. I mean, it's in the 21st century. I mean, we're now, you know, 23 years in, you know, people don't do a career for 60 years. Very rarely. Some people do. But I mean, to say to a 22 year old, OK, if you're picking this career, this is the career you're going to be doing to your 70." like that's just seems insane to me, you know, and I I just don't even, I I don't even understand why that's an issue. You know, if someone's a teacher, and is a great teacher for five years, 10 years, and then goes into something else, that's lovely. That's, you know, that seems like a success. If they then do something else, and then go back into teaching in a leadership role, that's great. You know, if someone does something else, and then goes into teaching, that's great. Like, you know, I don't understand the idea that there's this like thick wall, and that, you know, one wall, everyone's a teacher for life, the other is not a teacher for life, like that doesn't seem good for kids or for for education.
0: Do you think that's a conventional view that Teach First has helped to change, this idea that it's not necessarily right for everyone to do the same job their entire lives?
1: I mean, I think it's the general, I think it's the zeitgeist or like, you know, I think people are working longer and, you know, don't retire at 50 anymore. And so I I feel like it's been a change over 20 years now, but I, I hope we've helped bring that into education.
0: Brett Wigdotz stood down as chief executive of Teach First in 2017, 15 years after the organisation was founded. He has kept a close eye on education in the UK and has concerns about the path it is on today.
1: Yeah, I do worry, you know, and I think there's more teacher shortages now than there have been in the past. You know, I worry we're going back to 2002 when there were massive teacher shortages Um, I worry that the education gap between wealthier and poorer kids has grown since COVID and isn't recovering. You know, it was getting better for 15 years and last few years it started going in the wrong direction. And I worry that educational disadvantage isn't one of the top political issues anymore. You know, at the very least, in the 2010 election, like this was one of the top issues people were debating and talking about. And I worry it's not something people talk about now. You know, I I am really worried about that, that, you know, we were really making progress in this country. And I'm concerned, you know, things might be going backwards.
0: What do you think needs to be done or or changed in order to, to sort of stop that happening?
1: I think first of all, both the government and the opposition need to realize this is, look at this as a proper civil rights issue. It's not a esoteric issue. You know, at the end of the day, do you believe every child deserves an outstanding education or not? Like this has to be just a core part of anyone's policy. If you, wherever you are on the political spectrum, if you don't believe every child deserves a great education, then say it. If you do believe every child deserves a great education, which I hope most believe, then you know everyone just has to realize that's not happening right now. And things are moving in a direction to make that less likely. So I think any politician with integrity just needs to really grip this issue and understand, you know, it's not just about teacher salary or this or the other. It's about a whole structure around education and ensuring kids from the low single backgrounds really get access to the best teachers, the best schools, highest standards. And that needs to be real focus.
0: You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to listen to or read bonus content from this episode, then please sign up to our newsletter, Off to Lunch. There you will find bonus content as well as business news and analysis throughout the week. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.